Hi, you're listening to New Books and Intellectual History, a channel of the New Books Network. I'm your host, Dexter Fergie. Today I'll be speaking with Christopher Dietrich, an assistant professor of history at Fordham University. We will be talking about his new book, Oil Revolution, Anti-Colonial Elites, Sovereign Rights, and the Economic Culture of Decolonization. It was published last year by Cambridge University Press. Oil Revolution is an impressive feat of scholarship. In the book, Dietrich recounts a critical moment in global history, that of the early 1970s energy crisis or OPEC crisis, except he doesn't tell this story in terms familiar to most Americans. Rather, he provides a much less Western and much needed texture to the energy crisis by foregrounding oil elites from the Middle East and Latin America. He explores how these global South elites overcame political and ideological differences and tried to transform a global economy that privileged Europe and the United States. The book should interest a broad audience, including scholars of U.S. foreign relations, the global South, resource politics, global governance, and intellectual history. I hope you enjoy our conversation. I'm speaking with Chris Dietrich about his really smart new book called Oil Revolution, Anti-Colonial Elites, Sovereign Rights, and the Economic Culture of Decolonization. Welcome to the show, Chris. Thank you. Thanks for having me. Yeah, of course. Your book was an immense pleasure to read, and uh, I learned so much from it. So thank you. You're welcome. (laughs) And so uh, uh, what drew you to becoming a historian? Uh, Well, I was always interested in history. I was uh, a history major and an English major in college. Um, and I was uh, living in Mexico uh, about a decade ago, maybe maybe longer. Um, and I was sort of thinking about what the next what the next step was. Uh, and a good friend of mine uh, was in grad school for history, and he sent me his master's thesis, uh, and I really liked it. Uh, and I I thought it was really interesting, and uh, and it looked like a lot of fun. Uh, so I took some time and applied applied to different history programs, and was fortunate enough that the University of Texas accepted me. Hmm. Wonderful. And so uh, your book is a, a really fascinating take on a story that uh, I think most people will have some familiarity with. Um, however, it tells that story from a perspective that will be less familiar to many listeners based in North America. Um, and that's the perspective of the global South. Uh, and you know that's even evident in your title, uh, Oil Revolution, um, rather than Oil Crisis. Uh, oil Revolution being um, a term used much more in the global south than uh, uh, in the global north. And so what brought you to this topic in particular? Right. So uh, the energy crisis or the oil or the oil shock, um, as as we tend tend to call it, or the oil, the oil revolution um, is a fascinating moment uh, in in the 1970s uh, in international history and in diplomatic history. Um, it's the largest transfer of wealth, um, uh, the largest peace, uh, peaceful transfer of wealth, uh, I believe, in human history. Uh, it's also the largest infusion of liquid capital uh, in modern, uh, uh, in modern, in the history of modern capitalism. Wow. Uh, so that was, uh, it's, it's a really important uh, and interesting, interesting event. Um, and I started studying it, uh, I was initially interested in uh, the 1982 uh, debt crisis, um, uh, but the sort of the scholarly literature wasn't uh, as well developed uh, on on that, uh, and um, the archives 
uh, in the United States weren't uh, weren't readily available. Uh, they're still uh, going through declassification now. Um, so I I moved back and thought about the causes of of the debt uh, of that debt crisis, and a lot of it had to do with high high oil prices um, and and investment. Uh, so I became interested uh, in in the energy crisis, and I set out initially to write a fairly traditional. Uh, diplomatic history of U.S. foreign policy and energy security uh, mm. from uh, the perspective of uh, research in the Johnson Library, the Nixon, uh, the Nixon Library, the Ford, uh, the Ford Library, and the Carter, the Carter Library. Uh, but as I was doing that research, um, and that's what I, most of what I wrote my dissertation on. Uh, but as I was doing that research, uh, these actors associated uh, with OPEC and the United Nations. Uh, kept coming up again and again uh, as sort of the main interlocutors uh, with the U.S. with the U.S. government, uh, and uh, I thought that they were really interesting uh, and that they were making interesting arguments. Uh, so I really uh, became fascinated uh, by the time I was finishing up, up graduate school and uh, and starting to work uh, with the ideas behind uh, the energy crisis. Um, uh, and I started I started digging. Uh, and I found a lot of uh, what I thought was interesting, interesting stuff. Uh, and the result is the book. Hmm. Well, that's great. So uh, it changed quite a bit from the dissertation to the the, the thing that I read. Yes. Yeah, it, it really it, it really did. I, I took a couple of big research trips um, uh, after uh, after I finished the dissertation. Uh, one uh, to the OPEC uh, Information Center in Vienna, uh, which uh, had a lot of uh, sort of interesting internal uh, discussions um, within uh, within the organization uh, and among its member uh, member states, uh, and I took another trip uh, to the United Nations Archive in Geneva, um, as well as as well as to the one here in New York, but that's uh, that's just down the down the road from me. Uh, so I, I found interesting connections uh, connections there uh, that sort of formed a scaffolding, uh, and then I realized more uh, more and more, and a lot of this was through interlibrary loan. Uh, I realized more and more uh, that there are deep connections between OPEC as sort of a commercial uh, a commercial enterprise uh, and uh, the sort of broader third worldist. Uh, explosion that comes with decolonization uh, and uh, the creation of a new sort of international society in the nineteen in the nineteen fifties and in the nineteen sixties. Mm-hmm. Great. Well, let's get into the book. Uh, and so, your your book is filled with intellectuals and policymakers, um, you know, especially from the global south. And uh, just to help set the stage for the listeners, I was wondering if you could sketch for us who some of your actors are. Um, you know, who were these oil elite? Uh, I mean, there's one person in particular um, that uh, I think has a, a really interesting um, backstory, and that's uh, Mahmoud Maghribi. So the, the, the U.S. educated uh, one-time in-house lawyer for uh, SO Libya, uh, who then went on to become the director of oil policy under Gaddafi in Libya. So, yeah. So who, who were these oil elite? Uh, right. Um, I mean, you've you've really you've really nailed it in describing describing Makribi, and I think that he's representative of a broader group of uh, actors that I describe as uh, anti-colonial elites, and and the oil elites fall within within that rubric. These are mostly uh, lawyers, economists, uh, some some geologists, uh, uh, some professional uh, policy policymakers, and diplomats uh, who were. Uh, 
Western trained and end up representing uh, either their home nations uh, or uh, or OPEC um, uh, in uh, international discussions about uh, about oil. Uh, so other uh, other examples are Jamil Baroudi, um, who ends up being the permanent representative uh, for uh, Saudi Arabia at uh, the United Nations. Um, Abdul Rahman Pajwak is another example. He's the UN representative uh, for Afghanistan. A uh, really important one is uh, Mohammed Salman, uh, who becomes uh, the director of the Arab League Petroleum Committee and then the oil minister uh, for uh, for Iraq. Uh, Fuad Rouhani, who's the first secretary general of, um, of OPEC. Uh, Francisco Parra, uh, who's a Venezuelan economist um, uh, who works for Arthur Arthur D. Little, uh, and then moves from Arthur D. Little to OPEC in the nineteen in the nineteen sixties. Uh, these are all actors that uh, that play key roles at one point or another uh, in making uh, what becomes a very influential argument uh, by the late by the late nineteen sixties uh, about the effect of decolonization on the practice of sovereignty uh, in the mm. international political economy. Mm. Um, I really want to get into their ideas um, because. Um, that's something that your book does a really, really good job uh, of doing is uh, just, um, you know, like tracing the intellectual lineages and political context uh, uh, of a lot of these ideas. Uh, and one way that you kind of connect everything is through what you call the economic culture of decolonization. Right. Uh, and so can you just uh, um, tell our listeners, um, what that very intriguing phrase uh, means to you? Yeah, that's an, that's an interesting question because I'm I'm not sure uh, if economic culture of decolonization is the right uh, is the right term. Uh, it's similar to ideology uh, in in some ways. Uh, what I what I meant by uh, the economic culture of decolonization is that is that this group of anti colonial elites um, they they share a world of uh, of common reference uh, and uh, the identification of problems. Uh, in this case, the problem is uh, sort of economic inequality as uh, as written into international law uh, through oil through oil concessions, uh, and they they look at a set of common solutions uh, for that problem. In fact, they have to be common solutions because no one nation can really go it uh, go it alone. Um, they uh, they understand that, uh, so they look uh, for solutions through uh, um, sort of. Uh, practices in the United Nations to support uh, the right of sovereignty, what I what I describe as uh, as sovereign rights, uh, as well as arguments uh, about inequality um, that are based on uh, terms of trade, uh, and essentially, uh, you know, the Prebisch, the Prebisch Singer hypothesis, uh, which is pushed forward in the United Nations in the nineteen uh, in the nineteen fifties, uh, which argues uh, that there's sort of a built-in structural inequality uh, to to the global to the global economy, and in particular, uh, based on Low prices uh, for natural for natural resources. Uh, so that's that's what I mean by this uh, by this culture that uh, that they share is this this shared set of uh, set of views. Uh, they share a lot more, right? Their Western education, the fact that they're uh, that they're jet setters, uh, that they're moving from from meeting from meeting to meeting, uh, that they're writing uh, that they're writing to each other, that they're producing they're producing a lot of uh, a lot of work. Uh, so it's not culture uh, in the sense that we normally think of. Uh, of sort of deep, uh, deep cultural, deep cultural history, uh, but I would argue that they're uh, that they're a unified group uh, that shares uh, that shares a, uh, a set of experiences and 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 a worldview uh, that could be defined uh, as as culture. Great. And what was the world that they encountered? Um, that is like the um, the the world of oil extraction uh, in like the 1940s, 50s, and 60s. 
um, like what, what what was the uh, the 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 political economy economy of oil? Right. So this uh, the world that they confronted uh, has been very usefully described um, uh, first by the uh, oil historian Daniel Jurgen, uh, and then by by others as the concessionary regime. Um, there are a series of concessions uh, signed. Um, in mostly in the 1920s and 1930s, uh, that govern the oil production uh, in the Middle East. Um, uh, so uh, here we're looking at uh, specifically Iraq, uh, Kuwait, uh, Saudi Arabia, um, uh, Iran, and uh, and others, um, by which, uh, uh, from the perspective of the oil elites, uh, uh, the sovereigns of those nations uh, signed over. Uh, the national sovereignty, their control over uh, their control over resources to multinational companies, uh, and those multinational companies controlled uh, not only production uh, um, but also the income uh, that uh, that those nations receive uh, from their most important natural resource. Uh, so they they're looking at that um, in the post-war era, in the post-World War II era, uh, and. Uh, they're looking uh, for ways to amend uh, or, uh, for the most radical of them, overturn uh, those uh, those contracts uh, so they can get uh, what they consider a fair deal uh, mm-hmm. for uh, for their oil. Wonderful. And your book begins with an account of the Iran oil crisis of the 1950s. Uh, and so when Mossadegh uh, sought to nationalize oil production in Iran, um, which then uh, provoked Britain and the U.S. to respond by uh, overthrowing its government, and so this was a really transformative moment, uh, not just for the oil elites um, and uh, intellectuals and policymakers of Iran, but um, for many of the actors in your book. And I was really blown away just by how often the memory of U.S. intervention was invoked, um, and it was invoked as an argument to not carry out anything that could be perceived as too radical. Um, so can you share with listeners a little bit about this so-called crisis and why it casted such a long shadow on those oil elites? Right. So I think Mossadegh is uh, is a fascinating figure because he really did uh, sort of go to the international community uh, with this argument about sovereignty uh, in, a, in a grand way, uh, right? He uh, went to the uh, international court. Um, he went to the Security Security Council, uh, and he made an argument uh, that what Iran was looking for in nationalizing its oil uh, and taking control or sovereignty uh, over over its oil uh, was not that different uh, from political decolonization. Uh, so he starts to make arguments uh, about economic independence or economic uh, economic sovereignty or economic decolonization uh, that do reverberate over uh, over time. Um, uh, the Iranian nationalization also fails, right? As you uh, as you note, uh, and uh, it's really interesting to see how the figure of Mossadegh uh, sort of changes over time uh, from being a warning uh, against nationalization, um, right? Uh, this is what can happen to you uh, if uh, if you. Um, Commit nationalization, right? If you can think, think of nationalization as a sin, uh, if you commit if you commit nationalization uh, and um, you're not ready, you're not ready for it. Uh, and then he uh, sort of um, the vision of him shifts uh, towards him being a, um, a martyr uh, for an immovable cause, uh, something that's bound to happen uh, in uh, in history uh, as decolonization becomes 
more deeply ingrained in international in international society, and sovereignty becomes more uh, economic sovereignty becomes more possible uh, for these uh, for these actors. So so you have uh, Mossadegh uh, sort of um, raised up as a warning. Um, uh, in the earlier days, uh, in the late 1950s, early early 1960s, um, but by the late 1960s and early 1970s, um, uh, his actions are are depicted as uh, as sort of a um, a harbinger of of what's to come. Right. Mm-hmm. Wonderful. And so, uh, moving onward, what were some of the oil elites' uh, challenges in um, the the rest of the 50s and 60s? And right. the, the, challenge, the challenges, the obstacles that um, uh, prevented them from organizing themselves. Right. So uh, it's it's interesting because uh, they really do uh, organize themselves uh, uh, quite quite well. I think um, uh, it's interesting to uh, to think about OPEC as being part of a uh, a broader. Um, third world con- conglomerate because it is the first uh, third worldist grouping uh, or grouping of the global uh, global south uh, that does have a permanent uh, a permanent secretariat with a uh, with an official set of goals right uh, and they organize really quickly to form a legal bureau a public relations bureau an economic uh, an o- economic bureau they conduct all sorts of all sorts of surveys um, uh, uh, often uh, with the help of international consulting firms, um, uh, oftentimes uh, based on uh, surveys conducted by by the United Nations, and they really do uh, conduct a you know fascinating information gathering effort, uh, beginning uh, with uh, with their founding in nineteen in nineteen sixty, um, but they don't have immediate uh, immediate success. Um, uh, not because they're not working together, uh, uh, but in part because of the economics of uh, um, the international oil industry. Uh, uh, in the 1950s and 1960s, although Western consumption is increasing uh, at uh, at huge rates, uh, and um, you know nations uh, like uh, Japan are increasing uh, oil oil use, uh, not to mention China, India, Brazil, um, uh, etc. Although energy consumption is is increasing. Uh, supply still outpaces demand uh, in the global oil economy, uh, and the United States itself uh, has spare capacity to offset uh, any supply disruptions, mm-hmm. uh, right? So if you look at the Iranian nationalization, um, uh, the multinational companies, with the help of the U.S. Uh, US Justice Department, uh, are able to essentially um, blacklist Iranian oil from the international market, uh, right? Um, which really does uh, hurt uh, Mossadegh's um, uh, sort of forward-looking political political stance and uh, the legitimacy of his government uh, within Iran uh, within Iran itself. Um, uh, in the 1960s, uh, national uh, nationalization uh, or um, even sort of uh, changes to the concessionary concessionary regime, uh, wholesale changes to the concessionary regime uh, aren't seen to be possible uh, because uh, it's, uh, there always exists the possibility uh, that um, one or two producers within, within OPEC uh, can uh, up their production at the expense, at the expense of others. Uh, there's a great quote uh, where um, uh, the national, the U.S. National Security Council is meeting, and uh, and Dwight Eisenhower says, "Well, we can just underbid uh, um, any of uh, any of the members, uh, and we'll be and we'll be fine." Uh, in that same meeting, Alan Dulles uh, says, "Well, you know, 
things might change. Uh, um, we can't uh, we can't discount them uh, discount them too much. Uh, this doesn't mean though uh, that OPEC doesn't have uh, sort of piecemeal successes over uh, over time. Um, they do renegotiate royalties uh, in uh, in between 1962 and 1965. And while they want more uh, that that they don't get, they they do sort of establish themselves themselves as a legitimate institution. Um, uh, with which whom uh, the multinational companies have to do business, mm-hmm. uh, so they they have to negotiate. Um, there are also a number, and I I take pains to point this out uh, point this out in the book. Uh, there are also a number of new concessions signed, um, uh, especially with Libya uh, as well as with Iran and Saudi Arabia uh, in the late 1950s and early 1960s that are on much better terms. Uh, than the concessions that were signed in the 1920s and 1930s. Uh, Those terms uh, become uh, sort of a guide uh, that that other producers can follow uh, and improve upon uh, over uh, over time and are are really important to understand uh, exactly what OPEC and the oil producers are pushing for uh, in 1970 and after. Mm -hmm. Well, another question that I wanted to ask, um, which uh, kind of... Um, relates to um, the the last thing you were uh, discussing about uh, how uh, you know like negotiations with one country between one country and a multinational um, sort of are, you know becomes like a, a model for other countries um, to uh, emulate uh, mm-hmm. and so there's this like circulation of models and information that um, plays a really really key role in your book especially um, in the discussion of sovereign rights and in relation to oil. So, uh, you know, multinational corporations had a much better information coordination uh, and management system, uh, and this enabled them uh, to uh, set prices among other powers. Well, you know, and, and at the same time, many of your oil elites were aware of this and tried to create initiatives to, uh, to challenge the sort of like the information dominance of the multinational corporations. Mm-hmm. Um, and so can you elaborate on uh, this uh uh, just the, the the important role of information in your story. Yes, ab- absolutely. Uh, so, um, I start the story right after uh, the Iran and Suez uh, Suez crises, uh, and it was really interesting for me uh, to see that uh, the Arab League uh, sent its president to the uh, to the famous Bandung meeting, um, and uh, that his records of of that meeting. Uh, emphasize um, the uh, the meeting of the economic bureau uh, of of the conference um, uh, at which they did discuss oil and low prices for natural natural resources uh, in uh, in language um, that uh, is a direct echo of uh, of Latin American arguments about uh, un, uh, unequal terms of trade uh, and the need to overturn those unequal unequal terms of trade um, after that um, and I found this out using mostly uh, um, British uh, British documents, but some uh, some stuff that's just available uh, uh, in the public in the public record. Uh, the Arab League uh, does um, plan uh, what becomes the first Arab Petroleum Congress, uh, which meets in nineteen in nineteen fifty nine, uh, and there they do start to exchange information. Uh, uh, really important actors here uh, include uh, the uh, Libyan. Uh, Oil minister, um, a, a guy named Anas Kasim, uh, who had rewritten uh, Libyan oil law in, uh, in I think in 1954 and 1955, uh, to uh, reflect 
sort of the changes that he thought were necessary uh, to the concessionary concessionary regime. Uh, so smaller uh, smaller concessions uh, with a specific ending date to encourage uh, the concessionaires, the companies working there, uh, to work more quickly and produce uh, to produce more oil uh, at the risk of losing. Uh, at the risk of losing their their concessions, um, so already uh, in the late 1950s, through uh, the Arab Petroleum Congress, uh, which is through the Arab League, uh, this uh, exchange of information is uh, uh, is beginning. Uh, after the uh, multinationals decide to uh, lower posted prices to maintain to maintain their profits, uh, and you know essentially uh, lower uh, the amount. Um, uh, that they're paying to the uh, to the host to the host governments, uh, a, a group of um, of leaders who had met at the uh, first Arab Petroleum Congress uh, come come together again in Baghdad, um, uh, uh, where the uh, Iraqi government invites them uh, and form and form OPEC. Uh, and the first thing they do is start to gather. Uh, to gather information, mm-hmm. uh, and this is where they they hire the Arthur D. Little uh, Little firm um, uh, to produce a report uh, on the on the oil concessions. Um, this is a report that's written by Francisco Parra, uh, who's a uh, you know Venezuelan economist uh, who later uh, is hired uh, to work for uh, directly for OPEC uh, and becomes sort of one of the main. Um, Public voices uh, for these arguments about uh, about sovereign sovereign rights, uh, and later becomes OPEC Secretary General in nineteen in nineteen sixty eight. Um, but if you go to the OPEC Information Center, uh, you can see that uh, uh, when uh, by the time Parra is there, uh, there's just this huge effort uh, to try to get every single national oil law on the books uh, and mm. printed uh, so so that others uh, so that others can read it uh, and here i think they modeled themselves uh, after the united nations permanent sovereign uh, sovereignty committee uh, which did uh, which did the same thing uh, but with all national laws and constitutions uh, that tried to guarantee some form of economic economic sovereignty um, uh, so are these there are these huge sort of uh, doomsday book um, uh, information gathering uh, gathering efforts uh, that are crucial not only to understanding uh, the world that these elites inhabited, uh, but to understand uh, the problems that they faced and potential solutions for those for those. Yeah, that's really interesting. Can you elaborate a little bit about the the position of OPEC and oil producing nations within the broader um, third worldist movement? Well, it's it's interesting. Um, uh, OPEC always tries to depict itself as being representative uh, of a broader uh, of a broader set of interests that has to do with economic sovereignty um, or sovereign rights, uh, as uh, as they would have it. Um, at times, they are uh, they are quite uh, they are quite representative um, uh, in the arguments that they're making uh, about uh, international law, about inequality in in the global the global economy. Um, uh, but oil is oftentimes left out uh, when you have meetings of the UN Conference on Trade, of Trade and, uh, and Development, uh, for uh, for example, um, and the uh, oil producers, especially uh, the ones with relatively small populations that have a lot of oil, um, aren't really representative of a broader set of third world uh, third world problems. So there is a schism uh, here uh, um, about the question of how how representative uh, oil uh, oil actually is, whether or not there is um, uh, an oil exceptionalism, uh, for lack uh, for lack of a better for lack of a better term, uh, and you see that division um, uh, between uh, 
what uh, Henry Kissinger describes uh, in 1974 as the haves and the have-nots. Um, uh, you see, you see that division uh, becoming much clearer uh, as oil prices go up. Uh, right, and this helps out. Obviously, it helps out the oil producers quite a bit, um, uh, but it also creates uh, the problem of debt uh, and sovereign and sovereign debt uh, for many uh, for many third world third world nations. Uh, so that uh, that schism between sovereignty and sovereign rights on the one hand, and sovereign debt on 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 another one, uh, I think points uh, to a, 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 a I guess a tension. Uh, in in this question of how representative OPEC OPEC actually is. Great. I think, yeah, we're definitely going to talk more about that because um, that's a very key moment in your book. Right. So we're we're finally leading up to um, the the uh, the oil revolution, uh, and things start to sort of change um, like after the year 1970, mm-hmm. um, just in terms of uh, the solidarity that is shared among oil producing nations, despite. There are various political differences. Um, you even call the the, uh, the period from uh, I think it's seventy one to seventy three as the heyday of oil power. Uh, and can you just say something a little bit about those changes um, that led to the the growing sense of solidarity? Yeah, I I can. Um, it's an interesting set of uh, uh, set of events that leads uh, that leads to this uh, to this moment. Um, I think a key moment uh, here that that happens before that uh, that oftentimes we don't connect uh, to uh, to the energy crisis uh, is the 1967 uh, Arab-Israeli War. Uh, I think that this um, changed a lot of the oil elite's perspectives on uh, on how much they could do and how and how quickly. Uh, I think it also plays a key role uh, in a couple of sort of uh, Geopolitical stories that uh, that come together in uh, in 1970 and 19 uh, and 1971 uh, that really embolden uh, the oil the oil producers uh, whether they're Arab uh, uh, or not um, uh, whether uh, whether they're concerned about um, about the Arab Israeli Israeli conflict uh, um, and at and at what level uh, so one of these is that in uh, uh, as a result of the six of the six day war. Um, uh, and Iraqi Iraqi pressure, as far as I can tell, uh, conservative monarchies like Saudi Arabia and Libya, uh, in particular, uh, begin to move uh, their investments uh, out of the pound sterling, uh, which uh, exacerbates an economic crisis in uh, in Great Britain, uh, and ultimately leads the British government uh, to decide to pull out uh, their forces east of Suez, uh, in particular uh, uh, of interest for me, is uh, in, in the Persian Gulf. Uh, this creates a vacuum. Um, uh, this is described by uh, uh, U.S. policymakers all the time as the British, uh, the British vacuum, uh, which the Shah of Iran didn't really like because he said, well, there's not that much of a vacuum. I can fill it. Um, uh, and uh, this, uh, in turn... Uh, uh, leads the United States, as we as we know, um, to look at the Shah as a guardian of of, of the Persian of the Persian Gulf. Um, this is part of the Nixon doctrine and the twin uh, the twin pillars policy, uh, and and all of that. Um, and so the United States looks at Iran uh, as well as Saudi Arabia um, as sort of new uh, regional powers uh, and military powers um, uh, that will be responsible for maintaining stability uh, in this uh, in this crucial uh, in this crucial area. Uh, 
Iran is really good at using this uh, and and their need for military hardware uh, to make arguments, uh, especially to the uh, Nixon administration, that the multinational oil companies need to yield a little bit uh, in their intrans- in their intransigent attitude uh, towards creating more income uh, for uh, for Iran, uh, and this uh, sort of dovetails uh, with a couple of other important events that lead up to this, uh, uh, I guess what I call the heyday of oil, uh, of oil power. Um, uh, so uh, another important, I guess, aftershock of the, of the Six-Day War uh, is a regime change in Libya. Uh, there are already uh, um, major problems uh, with stability uh, in this uh, sort of westward-looking Cold War ally for the United States, uh, which is um, uh, an ally under the uh, monarchy of, uh, of King Idris. Um, uh, the Libyan revolution occurs in 1969, and all of a sudden you have uh, sort of a, a radical regime uh, coming into power that plans to use uh, oil sovereignty to its to its advantage. You'll remember uh, from earlier in the discussion uh, that Libyan oil law was different uh, from the concessionary concessionary regime, uh, and this puts Libya in a relatively strong place uh, within the international political economy of oil uh, to make demands. Uh, of uh, its uh, of its producers, uh, many of which are uh, smaller producers, uh, and um, one of which, Occidental Oil, uh, relies on Libyan oil uh, for uh, a lot of its um, a, a lot of its production and distribution. Uh, so that's uh, that's another important um, aspect of this mm-hmm. of this sort of early '70s story. Uh, the third one uh, um, is that the international economy of oil shifts uh, from a buyer's market to a seller's uh, a seller's market. Uh, in other words, uh, supply uh, dips below uh, uh, dips below demand, and all of a sudden, the OPEC producers, as a group, have economic leverage uh, that they didn't uh, that they didn't have before. Um, uh, so, uh, when Libya does begin to slow down production uh, to pressure uh, Occidental and then the major oil companies in nineteen uh, in nineteen seventy. Um, they're doing it in a relatively dry market. Uh, not only do they have the support of OPEC, uh, they're also doing it in a, in a dry market. Uh, so all of a sudden, uh, practices that that were seen as being sort of uh, sketchy uh, in the 1960s uh, have the possibility of success. Um, it's still a risk, uh, but it seems uh, to many people that they're more likely to be successful uh, in this uh, in this period. Mm-hmm. Yeah, and to bring it back to the level of um, your oil elites, uh, someone like Mahmoud Magribi is a really uh, representative uh, case because you know he went from being opposed to um, these like you know so-called radical actions uh, against the international oil regime um, to uh, you know being at the forefront of a lot of the demands from uh from opec that's that's right uh when he uh was doing his uh law degree uh, his llm at george washington he he wrote a really uh, a really interesting thesis uh where he said you know it doesn't seem like it's going to be possible uh in current conditions uh for any one nation uh to press for nationalization uh that was in uh 1966 four years later uh, he is the uh, main uh, oil negotiator uh, for the Libyan Revolutionary uh, uh, Command Council, uh, and he's negotiating just uh, just that. Um, so he always believed uh, and hoped that this would be a possibility. Uh, but when he took sort of a cold, rational look at it in the nineteen 
in, in the mid 1960s, uh, he didn't think it was he didn't think it was possible. Uh, of, of course, as as you know, in 1967, he's working as an in-house lawyer for SO, SO Libya and gets fired uh, because he uh, helps organize strikes of students and of and of dock workers uh, from uh, from the inside. Uh, then he goes to Beirut. Uh, we assume that while he's there, uh, uh, he interacts with uh, Abdul Al Tariki, the so-called Red Sheikh from Saudi Saudi Arabia, uh, and um, I think uh, sort of begins to see. Uh, that these possibilities, uh, which Tariki had argued for um, uh, throughout the nineteen uh, throughout the nineteen fifties and nineteen sixties, um, are are that much more likely, uh, sort of given the uh, geopolitical uh, and economic uh, situation, the changing context uh, of uh, the changing circumstances, to use the phrase that uh, that OPEC lawyers like to use, uh, of uh, of the late nineteen sixties and early nineteen seventies. Mm-hmm. Great, and so we're uh, finally approaching the uh, you know the oil revolution itself, uh, and uh, I was hoping that you could uh, just kind of sketch out the broad currents of what the um, you know like this, the the OPEC crisis or oil revolution was, um, and more importantly, how your history um, or your, the story that you're telling um, is different from uh, other tellings. Like how how does the um, you know like putting the oil crisis uh, in conversation with the, the the past two decades of oil elites organizing um, change the narrative. Right. So I I think that there's still a, a fairly strong narrative um, uh, that OPEC uh, and its members uh, didn't really have uh, an intellectual history or an ideology. They're just interested in the bottom uh, in the bottom line. Uh, and they certainly are uh, interested in uh, increasing uh, their control over production, increasing the price, uh, the price of oil, and increasing the uh, the rents from oil that that their nations uh, that their nations receive. Um, but there is a longer history uh, history behind that, uh, and to make an argument about uh, about sovereign rights uh, helps us understand. I think uh, more clearly uh, the contours of what's going on between 1970 uh, and 1973. Uh, the fact that uh, the gradualists, uh, as I call them, Iran and Saudi Arabia, um, uh, in in particular, can work closely with uh, the insurre- insurrectionists uh, like Libya uh, and uh, and Iraq uh, and Algeria. Uh, I think the fact that they make arguments that um, that their economic sovereignty is something. Uh, that uh, Western nations, governments, and the oil companies have to accept as a given in international international society uh, is something that we oftentimes uh, oftentimes forget. Uh, this is a generation that grew up in decolonization uh, and understood uh, colonialism uh, and uh, informal imperialism, economic economic imperialism, uh, as uh, uh, something very real uh, and something that could uh, that could occur uh, again. Um, in their uh, in their lifetimes, it, it wasn't just uh, it wasn't just dead uh, dead letter. Uh, so I think that perspective helps us understand uh, something about why the energy crisis was so revolutionary, uh, why it was so so important, so shocking uh, for uh, for so many people, um, both in the global south and in the global uh, and in the global north. Um, I think in terms of policy, uh, uh, I don't want to go too far into the weeds, uh, but it helps us understand. Uh, why 
uh, Libya's nationalization of BP, uh, for example, which is a response to the Iranian, uh, an Iranian occupation of islands once controlled by the British uh, when the British uh, when the British leave. Uh, why that is uh, widely accepted and supported um, uh, by. Uh, other members of OPEC that don't support Libya uh, in all of its more radical uh, radical policies. Um, it helps us explain, too, why when Iraq uh, nationalizes in April of 1972, uh, why there's a certain amount of uh, OPEC solidarity behind Iraq uh, to the point uh, that uh, um, the companies aren't able to blacklist uh, or to blacken Iraqi oil uh, the way they could Iranian oil uh, a couple of a couple of decades uh, decades earlier. Uh, so there are all sorts of uh, little ways in which the story of international law and uh, and sovereignty and arguments about inequality in, in the international economy inform inform these events and help us understand exactly why they happened uh, why they happened the way uh, the way they did. Uh, the best example is probably the link between uh, the oil revolution and the founding of uh, the new international economic order uh, through the United through the United Nations. Um, I don't think that those two stories uh, can be told completely if they're told apart from each other. Uh, I, I think it's really important to connect uh, to connect those two uh, those two stories, even if it doesn't turn out the way um, uh, that, uh, say, the Algerians uh, who call for the sixth special session of the United Nations in 1974, the way that they hoped. Mm-hmm. Wonderful. Well, this segues perfectly into my uh, the next question that I really wanted to ask. Um, which was just about that relationship between um, the new international economic order and um, the energy crisis in OPEC. Uh, and so um, you've, you've already kind of alluded to how sort of like the energy crisis and OPEC's success um, be- becomes um, really inspirational for um, uh, advocates of the new international economic order. But then it doesn't last. <laughs> like, uh, the, 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 like you know, to tell the story together shows that OPEC's successes um, really undermined uh, the, the new international economic order's uh, ambitions. Um, so, uh, can you uh, discuss that? Just try to discuss that a little bit. Yeah, it, I do feel like the new international economic order flares out uh, fairly fairly quickly. Although there's a lot of new scholarship on this. Uh, uh, on these questions coming out, uh, coming out now. Every every time I go to the annual conference of the Society for Historians of American Foreign Relations, uh, it seems like there's a couple of fascinating panels uh, on these uh, on these very questions. So I don't I don't think the jury uh, uh, is is in on anything uh, anything that I've uh, that I've argued. Um, uh, but it does seem to me uh, that. Uh, um, the new international economic order does uh, does sort of fail uh, in its deeper challenge to to structures of uh, structures of inequality uh, and this argument about argument about sovereign uh, sovereign rights, um, uh, which is seen um, uh, within inter- uh, those international lawyers uh, uh, who believe in it, uh, and international uh, economists is sort of a. Uh, a good counterpart uh, to human rights, in fact, a, a sort of a deeper challenge to structural inequality uh, uh, in the international economy than, than human rights uh, human rights could be. Uh, it, there is this sense of this sense of possibility. Um, uh, you see this especially in in the United Nations in the UN Conference on Trade uh, Trade and Development. Um, where Manuel Perez Guerrero, uh, who's deeply involved uh, in this whole story, um, he was present at uh, the first Arab Petroleum Petroleum Congress. Uh, he's uh, working closely in, uh, uh, with sort of the internationalization of Venezuelan oil uh, oil policy in the, in the 1960s, and then becomes uh, the director of of, of UNCTAD. Um, 
uh, in sorry, what, what's what's uh, 19, uh, that acronym? Can you spell it up for listeners? Uh, the the UN Conference of Trade and Development. Uh, uh, he becomes the uh, uh, the Secretary General General there, uh, and he does hope uh, that uh, you know the the broader grouping of the G uh, of the G seventy seven the group of uh, the group of seventy seven uh, in the United Nations um, uh, can uh, sort of ride uh, uh, the wind of uh, of uh, of the oil revolution uh, to make arguments about uh, structural adjustments, uh, uh, not neoliberal structural adjustments, uh, but anti-colonial structural adjustments to the international international economy uh, through a series uh, through a series of meetings, um, uh, and ultimately, uh, even he himself admits. And one of one of my interesting finds was uh, was a, a letter that he uh, that he wrote. Um, uh, Right around the beginning of the new international economic order, uh, where he says uh, this would be this would be great, um, uh, but I don't know if it will be possible. Uh, and you have to uh, imagine him; uh, he's receiving a flood of reports uh, across his desk, uh, many of which celebrate um, uh, the achievements of OPEC as achievements for uh, uh, for the broader uh, for the broader third world. Um, but also uh, more and more, many of which note uh, sort of the crippling debt, um, the crippling oil-related debt, to use the phrase that was common then, uh, that many uh, developing nations faced uh, at uh, at that at that time. Uh, and I saw this again and again uh, in um, the uh, the embassy reports that were coming back. Uh, um, uh, to the United States, uh, as the United States was sort of looking for a way to undermine uh, the new international economic uh, economic order, um, uh, just sort of how uh, how large and um, and and I guess uh, uh, unprecedented uh, this uh, this type of debt actually was, um, uh, even in 1974, but certainly by 1975, 1976, 1977. Absolutely. Moving forward uh, into the present, um, what are some of the legacies of um, the uh, oil revolution uh, for uh, world politics and the world economy? Well, I I think uh, again, I think there's still a lot of work on this on this to be done, and this is one of the exciting things about working on the 1970s and, and thinking about the about the 1980s uh, is um, that the archival record is really starting to open up uh, for. Uh, diplomatic historians and international uh, international historians. Uh, I think that one of the most interesting questions that we can ask about this period uh, is uh, about the energy crisis. Is how the energy crisis uh, sort of shaped modern modern globalization. Um, uh, in some ways, uh, globalization, at least when I uh, look at some of the U.S. documents from this period. Uh, is depicted as a battle uh, against sovereign rights. Um, uh, it's sort of uh, the United States, I think, fairly consistently identifies nationalism, uh, especially resource resource nationalism, uh, as not only illegitimate uh, but as sort of an existential threat uh, to global economic health. Uh, and I think once you start to uh, to think about uh, that as an ideology. Um, uh, it becomes fairly easy to decipher uh, specific policy uh, policy pathways uh, that are meant to undermine uh, nationalism uh, as a threat not only to global economic health but uh, sort of the columns of that global economic health. Uh, the most important one of uh, of which is a respect for private property. Um, uh, so I do think that there 
are really interesting outcomes. Uh, outcomes to this uh, that um, it doesn't seem to me that many of the oil elites had really thought uh, uh, had had really thought of. Um, uh, there are a number there are a number of other ones that are uh, that are that are quite interesting, but I think that that's uh, that's the most uh, that's the most important important one. Great. Well, I think that's a, a perfect way to wrap up the discussion about the book. So, what are you working on right now? Uh, that's uh, that's a great question. Um, uh, I've got a, a couple of projects uh, that I'm uh, that I'm working on. the uh, The main one is a history of American nationalism and global oil from World War One to the War on Terror. Uh, mm-hmm. uh, that's with uh, Bloomsbury Academic, uh, and I'm really looking forward to sort of trying to tell a, a, a full 20th century story. Um, uh, that looks at it from uh, from the perspective of the United of the United States uh, and takes into consideration um, economic policy, uh, mil- military policy, uh, alongside foreign policy, but also that looks at domestic culture and consumption uh, as uh, sort of an important driver uh, of uh, questions about energy insecurity and vulnerability uh, in the United uh, in in the United States. Um, so that's uh, that's one project in the in the longer range. Uh, uh, I'm uh, thinking about a history that looks at uh, decolonization and violence, uh, but from the perspective of uh, of Ralph Bunch uh, and United mm. Nations United Nations peacekeeping. Uh, and I've started to do some uh, some research for that in the uh, in the Bunch papers, and and that's really uh, I'm really excited about that about that one too. But those are those are the two major the two major projects. Great. Well, those sound fantastic, and I uh, I can't wait to to read them. Uh, though I will be patient, I promise. Yes, uh, yeah. you'll, ha- you'll have to exercise great patience, I believe. <laughs> <laughs> uh, great. Well, I really want to thank you again for uh, speaking with me today, Chris. Well, thanks, uh, thanks so much, Dexter. I've, uh, it's, it's really been wonderful, and, uh, and I, really, I really appreciate you taking the time. Of course. And you've been listening to New Books and in Intellectual History, a channel of the New Books Network. And uh, we've been talking today with Christopher Dietrich about his book, Oil Revolution. <laughs>